Well, let's open our Bibles to this passage we read in John, John's Gospel. And as you opened your Bible and as uh, Nick was reading it, you would have noticed, of course, that we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And the problem, of course, is that it says there in... Uh, I'm not sure whether it's a good thing to do this, to actually include it in the main body of the text. Sometimes it's in a footnote, uh, as in the Revised Standard Version. But it says the earliest manuscripts do not include this section. So, do I just send you home? <laughs> oh, no. You don't off that easily. Uh, but there is a problem, isn't there, when we, when we read this kind of thing. Let me, let me assemble some of the scholars of Johannine studies. Uh, Don Carson of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, the, uh, despite all the best efforts, he says, to prove this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against it. Professor Bruce Metzger, the, uh, up until his death in 2002, one of the greatest New Testament scholars at Princeton University, the evidence for the non-Johannine origin of this per periscope of the adulteress is overwhelming. Professor Leon Morris of Australia, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of John's gospel. Andreas Kostenberger, this represents overwhelming evidence that this section is non-Johannine. Hermann Ritterboss, the evidence, the evidences point to an unstable tradition that was not originally part of an ecclesiastically accepted text, that is, accepted by the church as being John's gospel. So there are some of the big hitters, and the big hitters all agree and I could add another big hitter, uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, would agree with all of them that this is not part of John's gospel. Dr. Boyce's studies were in Johannine studies, and uh, particularly he was aware of that reality. So, what is that telling you? What it's telling you is that this story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts that we have of John's gospel before the 5th century. So, none of the early fathers, when they're doing expositions of John, refer to this or mention it. In fact, if you stop reading, if you read it and omit this whole section, and you read from chapter 8, 52 through to chapter, uh, sorry, 7, 52 through to 8, verse 12, you'll know that, that the, the flow of the story uh, is unbroken. It it does not belong here. In fact, uh, it is uh, at least in one or two manuscripts, one, manu <coughs> one manuscript, it can be found after Luke chapter 21, verse 28. In other gospel manuscripts, that is, Gospel of John manuscripts, it comes after 736, 744, and 2125. So you're beginning to get a picture here. This is not, this is, is not originally John's gospel. When you do study of the text, it does not read like John's gospel. John has a particular signature. You know the kind of language he uses, the way he uses words, and so on. And this section 
doesn't have any of those Johannine elements to it. So what are we going to say? In style, in vocabulary, it is unlike anything else that John has written. So, what do I do? Do I ignore that and then just preach on it anyway? I think we'd take a moment tonight to do something that I wouldn't normally do, and that is to just kind of review how it is we get the text of Scripture, and then we'll do that briefly, and then we'll look at the text itself. You know that for 1,500 years before the printing press was invented, all of our copies of the Bible were handwritten, meticulously handwritten, and were copies of copies of copies. We happen to believe that the original, the original copies of the New Testament, that is the ones written by the apostles, are without error, are infallible, are the very Word of God. We, we, we hold that. They're inerrant, those original manuscripts. And what we have over those 1,500 years are a whole series of copies. Some of them are in uppercase Greek letters. We call them unseals. Others are written in lowercase script in Greek, minuscules. A smaller number of them are found in papyri, made from the papyrus plant that was prevalent in the Nile uh, Delta. And another group of manuscripts are the lectionaries, that is, collections of texts that were put together for reading in public worship by the early church. Now, one of the things that strikes you when you look at these manuscript evidence for the Christian Scriptures is the sheer abundance of it. If you compare it, for example, to some of the great works of ancient Greek literature, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, for example, was composed somewhere between 58 and uh, 60 B.C. We have ten existing manuscripts all of which date from the 10th century A.D. In other words, 900 years or so after they were originally written. Nothing in between. That's all we have. Livy's Roman history, roughly written about the time of Jesus, there are 20 manuscripts of that that again are considerably later than the period from which, at which they were written. Tacitus, another Roman historian, uh, we have two manuscripts of his history and his annals, written about 100 A.D., both of them, or one of them from the 9th century and the other from the 11th century, so nearly a thousand years after they were written. Now compare that to those numbers of manuscripts and partial manuscripts that we have of our New Testament. There are 322 unsealed texts, 2,907 minuscule texts, 2,445 lectionary portions, and 127 papyri for a total of 5,801 manuscripts of our New Testament Scripture to work with, which is a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing, of course, is they've all been copied of co copies of copies, and so therefore there's a lot of misspellings, and there are some mistakes. But the good thing is that there's so many manuscripts that they're almost self-correcting. And you can see from the sheer scope and enormity of the manuscripts 
what is probably the right reading of any particular, uh, of any particular text that you might be studying. There's also the fact that any, all, most of those little mistakes are in fact transpositional mistakes. None of them affect or alter any doctrine, any Christian, basic Christian teaching through the whole process. In fact, we are more than secure in the knowledge that we have in our New Testament, as we have it now, even in our English translation, we have substantially, perhaps 98% of the exact word-for-word of the original versions. F.F. Bruce put it like this, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting those er er errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is in truth remarkably small. It is an amazing achievement. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, or he goes on to say this, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material questions either of historic fact or of Christian faith or moral practice. Now, nothing has changed in that period. In fact, things have got better in that period since he wrote in the 50s. Since then, more manuscripts have been discovered. Since then, more research has been done, for example, on the material found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have greater evidence for our New Testament, particularly as it stands. And so in 2006, Professor Wegner reaffirmed F.F. Bruce's assessment, and he says this, it is important to keep in perspective the fact that only a very small part of the text is in question. Frederick Kenyon said, it's reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all the discoveries and all the study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of Scripture and our conviction that we have in our hands, in substantial integrity, the veritable Word of God. So there you have it. The, uh, the textual evidence is overwhelming. And that also means, of course, that the textual evidence against this little section is overwhelming. It does not belong in John's gospel. So how do we handle it? We're back at the beginning. You know, there's a little verse that we find in John's gospel in chapter 20 and verse 30 that says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So we're very conscious that what we have in our New Testament gospels is a substantial account of the life of Jesus, giving us a clear insight into the life of Jesus, what he did, what he said, but it is by no means exhaustive. All we're seeing there is a selection, the very tip of the iceberg. John says the whole world could not contain the books that would be written if you told the stories of every life that was impacted by that one life during the period of his earthly life and ministry. And so, for example, Papias, who died in the year 100, and who was an associate pastor with the Apostle John in Ephesus, 
Papias knows the story of the woman taken in adultery. In the third century, a collection of apostolic uh, words, apostolic teaching called the Apostolic Constitutions contains the story of the woman taken in adultery. When Jerome was putting together a Latin translation of the New Testament, he included the story of the woman taken in adultery. I quoted Don Carson earlier, and Professor Metzger of, of uh, Princeton, Metzger says this, this account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. In other words, what he says, what Don Carson goes on to say, there is very little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. In other words, I think what you have here is an actual story of the life of Jesus that was well known in the early church, that was taught in the early church, but was not collected by Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, and used in their Gospels. But it had apostolic authority, authentication behind it. It was regarded as an apostolic story that was relayed by word of mouth, taught in churches, perhaps in some manuscript somewhere, and was preserved by the church as an authentic piece of apostolic teaching. And that's how people looked for somewhere to put it in the existing scriptures, because they recognized here is, here is a true story of Jesus, here is a word of, the Word of God for us, and because it doesn't belong to any of the books, we need to put it somewhere, let's pop it down here in John's Gospel. And they couldn't have picked a better place to put it. Seriously. Because the whole background to the story is similar to the background that you see here in John's Gospel. That's why, that's why it has kind of lived there in the life of the church since that period. The scene is the temple. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. That's what he's been doing at this period. He's doing it again. And all is peaceful and quiet, and people are listening to Jesus teaching, and they're interrupted by a bunch of scribes and Pharisees who interrupt the conversation. Now, I remind you, the scribes were the Jewish theologians. They were experts on the law. They were critics of the Bible. They understood it back to back, cover to cover, and all the bits in between. The Pharisees represented more of a religious movement. They were wanting to turn the clock back to conservative religious practice of the past. They were a kind of spiritual revival movement within Judaism. So the scribes and the Pharisees, very significant in the story. So there's the ring of truth. They were always coming to Jesus. They were regularly testing Jesus. They're regularly trying to take him off guard by giving him, uh, by giving him the honor of the title rabbi when in fact they wanted to give him the honor, take, you know, let him drop his guard for a moment, feel honored while they get their knife and stick it in between his ribs. And we find him do, them doing that here. They push a woman down into the the dirt in front of him. And they say this to him, Teacher, Rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us 
to stone such a woman. So what do you say? It is a blatant test to see if Jesus will contradict the law of Moses. Now let me remind you that the law forbade, forbade sexual intercourse between two people who were not married. It says this in Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, that is having sexual intercourse with another man's wife, both of them shall die. The penalty for adultery was death for both parties. Now that raises a conundrum, doesn't it, in the story as you read it here. Have you noticed? You could actually call this story the case of the missing adulterer. Because there is someone very obviously missing from the story. Let me remind you of what it is these people say to Jesus. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now think about that for a moment. Don't think about it for too long, but think about it for a second. <laughs> Let me just say this. You cannot commit adultery on your own. You just can't do it. So there is somebody missing here. There is a man missing here. Now, did he run away when they found out? When he was caught in the very act? Was the woman the victim of sexual bias by these religious leaders? Perhaps the man was a very important person and they let him off. They gave him a break. We're not told, but there's something dodgy about the way this scenario is working its way out. How committed were these scribes and Pharisees really to the law? Or is the law a pretext for their prejudice against Jesus? Verse 6 makes clear what their motives were. We don't expect them to, get a great to expect a great deal of justice here. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. They were using this woman. Every bit as much as maybe the man she'd been with had used her. They're using her. They're using the law. They're using her to get rid of Jesus, the troublemaker. They know that whatever answer he gives is going to get him into trouble. If the law said adulterers should be put to death, and Deuteronomy added put to death by stoning, what would Jesus say? If he pardoned the woman and they had a sneaking suspicion he might, because they knew his record. The authorities would condemn him for disregarding the law. If he said, on the other hand, she should be stoned to death right now, they knew that not only would people regard Jesus as being harsh, because stoning was very seldom practiced by this stage, but also Jesus would come up against the Roman authorities because the Jews had no power under Rome's authority to pass the death sentence on anybody. That's why Jesus was handed over to Pilate, because only Pilate could kill him. In other words, they were putting Jesus between a rock and a hard place. So what does Jesus do? He bends down and starts to write with his finger on the sand. This is the only time we ever read of Jesus writing anything. If uh, this little section adds anything to the story of Jesus, it's adding this fact that he could write. And he's writing in the sand. And Jesus writing in the sand has provoked no end of speculation. 
What was he writing? What was he doing? Was he writing cartoons? Was he, was he, just, you know, was he just writing something for the sake of it? Was he playing for time? Was he diverting attention away from the embarrassed, no doubt terrified woman? Was he overcome with shame as he saw behind the circumstance to the hypocrisy and the cruelty of these religious authorities? Was he writing in the dust the sins of these men who stood before him? The normal word for uh, Greek to write is graphine, but here it's catagraphine that's used, which can, mean, which can mean writing down a record against someone. Could mean that. Was he making an allusion to the giving of the law? After all, he had been claiming, in John's gospel at least, he was claiming to have been the one who gave the law to Moses. And the law, remember, Exodus 31, 18, was written with the finger of God. The Ten Commandments, remember the ones he broke, Moses broke, were written by the finger of God. Or was he imitating the judge in the Roman courts who would write down their verdict before announcing their verdict? All of those are possibilities, a whole stack of possibilities there. I'm going to let you decide for yourself tonight. John Calvin, though, warns you in his commentary on Romans, when God closes his holy mouth, we should desist from inquiry. In other words, if God doesn't tell you what's going on, you shouldn't make it up for yourself. Jesus is writing on the ground. Everybody has their pet theory. I think mine is the right one, but I, I won't tell you what it is here. So verse 7 Jesus then speaks. He's writing on the ground. I, I think there may be... Uh, the problem is, of course, it's not from John's Gospel. If it belonged to John's Gospel, there would be a very clear relationship to the Moses material that's just been there. And we might very well conclude that it's the reenacting of the giving of the Ten Commandments, the finger of God. But Let's put that to what. Let's take Calvin's advice. Jesus does speak. We, do, we know what he said. Verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone. So here's my three points this evening. Jesus, number one, Jesus establishes the law but introduces grace. Jesus condemns the sin but loves the sinner. And Jesus pardons the sinner but upholds the law. Let's briefly look at those things. Jesus establishes the law, but introduces grace. Do you notice that in his reply, Jesus does not negate the law of God. He affirms the law of God. The wages of sin is death. But he's also confronting these people who were hypocritically bloodthirsty in their desire to shame and punish a person who has fallen. It's not wrong to punish criminals, but it is wrong to convene a kangaroo court, drag one party, in this case, before the court, to add insult to her injury, and to call for her death. Jesus is not here hedging his bets. He's not siding with Rome. He is siding with the law of God. Let him who is without sin. He is challenging all of them 
concerning their sin. He is accepting the woman is guilty. But he's also pointing out that the men are guilty. The woman is guilty of adultery. The men are guilty of hypocrisy. They stand before him, all of them, guilty before God. He's challenging them to do what only he could do. He who is without sin among you, be the first to cast the stone. What he is doing is contrasting himself with them. He is without sin. They are not without sin. Not one of those men is without sin. Every one of them. And he alone is the one who is without sin. Yes, they were right to consider adultery as law-breaking. But they regularly limited their view of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law of God, but their transgression goes deeper and the, than the action itself. It goes to the heart and the motives of the person. And these men, their heart, their motives, their intentions, were to trip Jesus up, the Son of God. They were actually engaging in a sin that had far greater weight they wanted to embarrass, to, to disregard, to reject, to get into trouble the Messiah of God. A far greater sin. Throughout the Gospels, we, we see Jesus standing up against the Pharisees and the scribes' view of the law, ch constantly challenging them to go back and to read the law and to see what the law means. For example, when it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It wasn't saying, I don't want sacrifice, but I want mercy. I want a heart that goes with the sacrifice. Uh, he, he challenges them, for example, about the Sabbath day. It's right. It's right that certain things should not happen on the Sabbath day. But to make a man whole, I mean, if you circumcise a child by cutting away his foreskin on the Sabbath day. Surely I can make a man well on the Sabbath day who's been ill all his life. Jesus challenges their, their, their motivation. He challenges their use of the law as a, as a kind of lever to get power over people when he says to them, the law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's challenging them all the time to their misuse of the law. And so Jesus exposes their misuse of the law. Let him who is without sin. Whenever anybody came up close and personal with Jesus in his holiness, like Simon Peter did on one occasion, he says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. This, these words of Jesus cut to the heart of these men. And we're told that from the oldest to the youngest, they left one by one, one by one. Jesus establishes the law, but introduces grace. Secondly, Jesus condemns the sin, but loves the sinner. I'm really not fond of that expression the way it's normally used, but I'm using it tonight in the way it should be used, I think. And I'll explain in this passage. They're all gone. And Jesus, we read, was left alone with the woman standing before him. No doubt disheveled, uncomfortable, ashamed, afraid, perplexed. Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
What's important to notice in the story is that Jesus condemns her sin, but no more than he condemns the act of cruelty and hypocrisy in the hearts of the men who had brought her to him. Sin is sin. The sin of hypocrisy may well be as bad in God's eyes as the sin of adultery. But both the woman and her accusers of sin, they've broken God's law. They deserve God's punishment. Later, he will tell her to go on and stop sinning. Sin matters to Jesus. It mattered so much he was prepared to go to the cross to bear its judgment and shame and meet the demands of the law. And those writers who love to teach, and we have plenty of them in America today, who teach that Jesus replaces the law with love, have failed to notice that Jesus defines her action as sin. That needed condemned. Jesus, for Jesus, love would be blind without the law to guide it. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And it's then we hear the woman speak for the first time. Up to now, she said, not a word in this story. The crowd have said what they had to say. But now she gets to speak to Jesus. No one, Lord. Lord. Curious is the Greek word. It can mean sir. But this moment here is far too loaded for it to have been used simply as sir. The dissolving of the crowd, the seriousness of the moment, the focused action of Jesus writing in the sand, the looks on the faces of those men filled with hate and then with shame. And their skulking off must have overwhelmed her. When she says, Lord, she most likely means Lord in as strong a sense as she was able to embrace or grasp. Lord. Lord as in the one who gave the law. Lord as in the Lord of the covenant. She saw in the presence of Jesus the redeeming Lord himself. And though her faith was basic, her faith was real. No one, Lord. Then the third thing. Jesus pardons the sinner, but upholds the law. Jesus had said, you remember, in John's Gospel that he had not come into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved. Now, there's a sense in which the whole world is already condemned before God. But Jesus says to this woman, I, I have not come. This is, there's coming a day, of course, when I, he will come again. On the final judgment, he will come to condemn the world. But this is the day of grace. Jesus has come to pardon sinners. Neither do I condemn you. Now what does he mean by that? Is he saying neither do I condemn you? It doesn't matter if you commit adultery. 
No, you notice what he says. I don't condemn you. I'm pardoning you. From now on, sin no more. Don't commit adultery anymore. Not just because you're afraid of getting stoned, or being stoned, not getting stoned, but because you've met God. <laughs> I'm glad you got that. That uh, was unintentional. Uh, but because you've met God and you've been rescued by His grace, you've been saved by grace. This is part of the message of the entire whole New Testament. In other words, this little section about which we're not sure where it should be in our Bibles, except that it should be in our Bibles, is, is compatible with everything else we know from the New Testament. We are called to be holy as God is holy. God hates sin. But pursuing holiness without a profound experience of the grace of God in our lives produces hypocrisy and doctrinaire cruelty like that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Keeping the law without grace in your heart becomes something harsh, unremittingly harsh. You don't want to be in that environment. But keeping the law becomes wonderful and beautiful if you have received grace, if you've heard His words of pardon, of no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then this law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus kicks into operation. And we begin to live the kind of life that pleases God. That's what Jesus has come into the world to do. To build a new society of people like this woman who are pardoned from their sins and who leave to live a life that pleases God and that has God's hand of blessing upon it. The Pharisees left when they were, felt themselves condemned. The woman stayed in the presence of Jesus confessed him as Lord, and heard his words of mercy and pardon. So where will you be on that scenario this evening? In Camus' novel, The Fall, Jean-Baptiste Clemence, a once successful Paris barrister who had fallen into debauchery and immorality, becomes terribly aware of his own guilt but believes that religion can no longer help him. He says this, I am inclined to see religion as a huge laundering venture. Laundering, not in the sense of laundering money, but laundering clothes, cleaning clothes. A huge laundering venture. As it once was, but briefly, for exactly three years. And then it wasn't called religion. Since then, soap has been lacking, our faces are dirty, and we wipe each other's noses. Now what Camus was saying is this, that for that three-year period that Jesus was here, religion made a difference. People were pardoned from their guilt and their shame. But apart from that three-year period when Jesus was here, religion has just made obedience hard 
and the relationship with God hard and harsh, Camus' figure, Jean-Baptiste, does not have any hope of finding pardon. He has to live with his guilt. He believes that there is nothing left to help him. What Camus needed to know, what his character, Jean-Baptiste, needed to know is that Christ is alive from the dead. He is alive and well, and he is still in the laundering business. And he still cleanses and washes and forgives and pardons and does not condemn those who come to him. He does this without condoning sin. He went to the cross to bear its consequences. But because of his death for sin, he offers to those like this woman who confess him as Lord, pardon, complete pardon, forgiveness, total forgiveness, and the prospect of a new life. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that from this little snippet of a story, however, whoever wrote it, however you and your providence preserved it for the church, this story, which seems to be apostolic and authentic, comes to us tonight as the Word of God to us. We thank you that you love the sinner and hate the sin. We thank you that you establish the law but you show grace. We thank you above all that you pardon the sinner, but uphold the law. And as you pardon our guilt this evening, we pray that you would send us out to be those who keep the law to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.